Genesis 15. We get to study the horror of great darkness. Not the horror of great darkness. <laughs> the horror of great darkness. <laughs> Read um, Harry, read one through, read, read the whole chapter. Do we really have to study the horror of great darkness? Yes. It's right with, it's, it's in the circle thing. You can't skip it. Can't skip it. <laughs> After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, what things? After he had been fed by Melchizedek, the communion, he was fed by Melchizedek, the bread and the wine. He had separated from Lot, which signified the substance. So he's now separate from everything, and he's fed the bread and the wine by Melchizedek. First thing that happens after you've fed the bread and the wine is the test comes. Now we're going to, now we're going to see about this test. But the promise is, no matter what the test, the promise to Abraham is, is fear not, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward, no matter what your sensory perception tells you. I want to ask you something. I was wondering about this the other day. When it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. Is that, after these things, Jesus came to Abram in a vision saying? Right. The word in, in, in Hebrew, whenever it has an article before, like the word or the angel, it means it's there is only one, and, it, and the article emphasizes the uniqueness, the singularity of that one thing. Uh, the word or the angel, both of them are Christ, just like Melchizedek was Christ, not Jesus Christ, but Christ. Okay? And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? Okay. You, 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 you got it. Abram is is um, he's ninety years old, and uh, he's apparently either he or his wife is not fertile, and he Lot would normally have been his. Um, under the laws, the ancient laws of inheritance, and he's a very rich man now, Lot would have been his uh, inheritor or his heir. But he and Lot separated before the promise could come. And so now he's saying, another, another thing that happened then was that um, when there was no son, there was no child or no relative, then the heir was a slave. And, and tradition says that Eliezer, Eliezer and, and uh, who was from Damascus, and Abram built the city of Damascus, which is now one of the two oldest cities in the world, Damascus, not Damascus, Syria. I think I told you all before that when I, w I got put in jail in Syria, 
and uh, then I finally got released, and, and I spent the night at a place that was probably was less than a hundred yards from the point at which allegedly Paul had the Damascus Road experience, and that was kind of a freaky experience. But Damascus is a fascinating city because it, it comes up in everything all the way through history. It's anyway, go ahead. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thy own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought it forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, that thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Okay. This is the first time that the word, the phrase, the word of the Lord occurs in the Bible. It's only one other time here, and it's, uh, it's Genesis 1-1 and Genesis, I mean Genesis 15-1 and 15-4. Then it starts, it's common in, uh, in Exodus and the rest of it. But the word of the Lord, the word Lord there is the word what we, the way we pronounce it is Jehovah or Jehovah and it comes from the Greek I mean from the Hebrew word I am and it just means the self-existent 99 times out of 100 when you see the word God it means the self-existent the I am it doesn't in other words he needs no modifiers and so in the New Testament when you are called when it's called that you are a peculiar people, and we've covered this before, it's a, it's a, it, the, the reason, if you've ever read the book translating for King James, the scholars had a terrible time with this word that they finally translated peculiar, because it was the feminine of the Greek verb form, I am. And so the point is, if you're a believer, you are I am. You cannot, and I am can have no modifiers. You're not male or female, rich or poor, hungry or naked, full or anything. You're just I am. Yourself, it's, 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 it's an existence that is not dependent on any external circumstances. And that's what it means to be a believer. Well, they didn't know what to do with it. That's the point. It, in, in the yeah sure in the, in the Greek it was when when Peter wrote it he put it at the feminine I am because it is the bride of Christ but when they translated it into English they didn't know what to do with it so they said this is a peculiar word and so it became peculiar you are a peculiar people but the, 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 the strength of it is and the thing that you should know is that you can't have any modifiers you can't be an American Christian you can't be a Christian businessman. You can't be a Christian man or a Christian woman. That also seems like it sort of suggests that there's no lack. That's right. There is no lack. There's no leaven of Herod. It's impossible to have lack. And so as that concept of who you are, I am, the feminine, and the feminine can't exist alone, in, 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 in physics, it can't exist alone. There has to be, the feminine is only the negative which draws the positive. 
I mean, it can't exist alone. It's physically impossible. It's like a vacuum can't exist. It draws in. And when, when it's the, the negative or the feminine of that verb form, it says the negative. It can't <coughs> exist. And it's only when you put a covering over yourself that defines your strength, your apparent strength, which, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, so you, get, you, 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 you live and you love the darkness because you can compare yourself with people. But when you see the vanity or the futility of doing that and take all covering that protect you off, then the I am exists and it draws just as nature, if a vacuum draws something into it, the I am negative draws feminine, draws the positive, which is the father. I mean, it's not, this sounds metaphysical, but it's, it's, it's as certain, or it's more certain than the laws of gravity or the laws of physics. It's more certain than the sun is going to shine. You can't have need if you've taken the covering off. But, but, but covering isn't just um, covering. The covering is all of the compulsions and, and and fabrications that you've put on upon yourself your whole life, to, and you literally have fabricated a false self. That's why you must return as a small child. And the false self is fabricated throughout your life by all of the good and evil concepts that you have been foisted on you. It's not your fault. I mean, it's necessary so the test will be complete. But you must return to that moment of I am, or childlike dependence. Is it sort of like only acknowledge thy weakness, only acknowledge thy need? Well, but, but even that, you can get identity from acknowledging need. You only acknowledge God. You, you, there's a lot of people in the world that get their whole identity from acknowledging their weakness. It's much more than that. That just provides an, uh, you know, that the, the, your weakness becomes your covering because you get identity from the weakness. And it's just as evil as I mean. There's. It's just as evil to be poor as it is to be, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just as evil to be sick as, I mean, it, you, you're, you're in a different dimension. You no longer think in those terms. And that's what happens through the process of testing. But my point is that all these concepts that are so striking are revealed in the name Jehovah. I am. Okay. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to talk about a couple of things here. In verse 1 it says, uh, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. It should be, that it's a bad translation, it should be, Thy reward shall be exceeding great. Now, what is the reward? And the reward for what? I want you to remember this. This ties perfectly into what we're studying in the other group. The promise was given here to Abraham without condition. Abraham had never read a Bible. Abraham had never, he wasn't circumcised. 
He certainly had never gone to synagogue. All he did was screw up. He sold his wife twice. He sold her to, in Egypt. Then a little, few, a little bit later, he's going to sell her again to Abimelech. All he did, all he did was, you know, was screw up. But now he's going to have the fulfillment of his seed. Amen. And it's, 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 but my point is that it's without condition. There was no law that he had to follow to get it. Now, modern religion, and in your mind, because all of you, I don't care if you're atheist, you're religious. You still think in terms, by definition, anyone that thinks in terms of reward or punishment or cause and effect is religious. Okay. So you still think that you have to earn something. Or you have, you're going to be punished if you do something wrong. But Abraham is the perfect example. His promise was given without condition. We'll see it over and over. All Abraham did was screw up. Now that's man, Abraham, is he's in a minute. In, well, you know what he's going to do in a minute? He's going to go and he's going to go crawl in bed with Hagar, his wife's slave. But anyway, I want you to get this in your mind. The promise is here. It's given, and, and Galatians says the pro, that, that his promise went not to the seeds as of many, but to the one seed. That one seed is Christ. That one seed of Christ is shed on all flesh. So it's not given to all you individually, it's given to one seed. And if the moment you know that the seed, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is your life, then that promise is manifested without condition. There's nothing that you have to do. And that's manifested in every arena. Not just some religious afterlife, afterlife BS. It's without condition. The promise was given 430 years before the law. But the promise is tested. Now we're going to get the test. But but it, it doesn't matter. He has passed the test. All that the test is for is so that you know who your life is. Experientially. It didn't it's not some religious BS. Okay? So I, I can't tell you how, how, how important it is for you to understand that the promise is there without condition. There's no thou's. Abraham had no thou shalt or thou shalt not. He didn't even, it never even entered his mind. Okay? Okay, as I said, he now thought that because Lot had been separated from him, who was his nephew, Abraham, Abraham now believed that he, that, that this steward, his steward was going to be his heir. Now,
an interesting, I want you to visualize, since the beginning of time, or since the beginning, since this point of the promise, in, in verse 5 it says that he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now, if you counted every person that had come out of the loins of Abraham, physical person, I mean, you, you, you come up with less than 100 million people. But God said that your seed shall be as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now, astronomers reckon that there are 40 times 10 to the 25th stars, which are the suns for that many other planets. Now, if you can imagine 40 times 10 to the 25th, that's 40 with 25 zeros. It's 40 sextillion. Okay, God's either lying or God is speaking in hyperbole or he's telling us something. The promise since the day of Pentecost, the seed of Christ has been in every sperm cell that has ever been shed by any male throughout for the last 2,000 years. Now, every time a male ejaculates, there's 500 million, if he's very fertile, there's 500 million, there's somewhere between 45 million and 500 million sperm cells. I'm telling you, that's the only way that you could ever come up with a number like 40 times 10 to the 25th until the seed is made. The seed is made to the true DNA character of each sperm cell, which isn't you, the human race, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, I mean, nothing else is required. That sperm cell is its own dynamic. And you still, I mean, we've talked for years about this, but some of you still believe that God loves you and God loves the world. God no more loves the world than you love the billions of sperm cell, if you're a male, that you've shed all over your stomach. He only loves the sperm that has been united with an egg. And symbolically or allegorically, that's what happens when you turn from self. Well, see, all that about sperm cells and everything, that really seems like it's splitting hairs to me. Now, if this reads like it seems to hear, it says, if thou be able to number them, I mean, that means he can only count so, certain many, you know, so well, he's not going to know. Okay, you want to go to another it, place? Well, it's, He it's said, like, your number shall be as the sand of the sea. Okay. But still, I mean, the, to say that the seed of Christ is already present in each sperm cell, I mean, how can, I mean, look at all the sperm cells that die. What's That's right. happening to the seed of Christ in this? No, I don't think that doesn't make any sense. What happened? Again, it sure it does. 
the, the, the male-female relationship, the sex act, reveals the total mystery of God. And you'll, I mean, I, mean, I don't want to, there's an, I'm, I'm, I assure you that if you go through the scriptures, and uh, we can do it some other time, I can show you a hundred places where that comes the only explanation for what the scriptures say. And so, maybe it isn't important for you to understand it, but it was for me. Okay? That's why, the, as we said, that's why the feast is so important. The feasts reveal the total mystery, these ancient feasts that are no longer celebrated. Well, this is the only point I wanted to make is that it makes sense to me that the seed of Christ is dormant in every person. I mean, the seed of Christ exists in every person. But the seed of Christ exists in every sperm cell? I mean, that just... It's the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. If there were a person for every sperm cell, I mean, we'd be... Like well, how did the, how did the seed of Christ get in every person if it wasn't in every sperm cell? That's a good point. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure God just put it there. <laughs> I just I just want to hug by that. I mean, it's like each time you masturbate, are you murdering the seed of Christ? You know. No more than 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 when a salmon lays in, lays eggs and and you know are the, are the the salmon, the, the eggs that get eaten by the sharks, are they are they murdering the, this all unborn salmon? I mean, it, that's God isn't concerned with it. God is concerned with the idea that His plan is coming to fruition, not with what he, the human race calls His plan. Okay. Verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now that's, that's the basis. It doesn't matter what else Abram does from now on. He believed, therefore it was counted to him for righteousness. Abram. Okay. Read... Uh, Seven through seventeen. Can I read it, Larry? Oh, wait, let's let's wait a minute. Does everybody understand fifteen one through six? Except you don't think you don't know how he got the. Well, you know, we all have these little things in our heads that we've been taught, so that when you use an analogy like that, it sounds. Naughty. I mean, it isn't, but it sounds that way. It sounds that way to me. What have you been taught? I just sort of think it sounds a little cockeyed. It sounds, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of nasty. I mean, it's sort of naughty. It isn't something you'd hear your normal preacher say in your normal pulpit. And we tend, I think most of us tend to giggle a little bit about it because of all the silliness that's involved in our attitudes. Well, let me ask this. If, why... How can you be sure that the seed is shed? I mean, you know, the seed is present in the, inside all sperm cells, but why not in the female egg? Not because the same thing. No, it isn't. Yeah, I would like to know that. The reason is, is because that is that is the mystery. The the the, the female egg stands alone until it's penetrated. And the, the, 
again, the whole concept of, of the male, the father figure, the bride, has to tie into that. The egg is the egg is like the body. The the egg, the body, the mother, your mother, Jerusalem. Okay, let's go on. Seven, huh? Who's going to read? Seven through seventeen. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that bought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an eifer, eifer, heifer, heifer, right, of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, in horror, a great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Okay. In the same day, yeah, go ahead and finish it. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Okay. This is why it's so dangerous to ask God for a sign. God says, Abraham says, Okay, I think I believe you. Whereby shall I know? And he said, Take me a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now, all of those, the heifer, the ram, the she-goat, turtle, dove, and the pigeon, these are all symbolic of the gods, the chief gods, of each of these other peoples that they're reading about. And they happen to be also the animals that were used in the sacrificial service 
that we're going to start studying now in Leviticus and the other group. So what does it mean? First of all, why these animals? Every one of these animals was the chief god of that culture that they were inhabiting. And that's why those animals became that which was sacrificed. If it if it was in, in remember we've talked about this before, but let me review it quickly. In the Chaldean system of astrology, the chief god in, in, in all these countries are the same. They're, they're, they're on the cusp, however. So in, in astrology, prior to Abraham, the age that the, the animal that signified the age that you were living in was the first constellation to appear in the evening on the spring equinox. Okay, Pri just prior to Abraham leaving Babylon, the, an the, this, the first constellation that you saw was the ram, which is what? Cap is the ram Capricorn? Aries. Aries. The next constellation, when a the reason Abraham left was because that God system was dependent on time and so he couldn't buy it anymore. Because in his lifetime, the first animal, the first constellation to appear was the bull or Taurus. And then the next one, etc., 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 as we see that. Now these animals signified the chief gods of each of those cultures. Now what animal would we have to sacrifice in this culture? What's the chief god in this culture? Well, aren't we in the age of Aquarius? Yeah, I know, but we don't pay attention to that. we got better god now. The chief god in this culture is the isolated self. Okay, so what Abraham is doing here, what God is doing to Abraham, is he's making him sacrifice the chief god in every culture. Does Abraham recognize that these gods, these animals represent those gods? Abraham knew it. Now, the pigeon and the turtle dove, one of them is symbolic of Ishmael and one of them is symbolic of Israel. The turtle dove is symbolic of Israel, the pigeon is symbolic of Ishmael, Abraham's other son. Okay, well let's 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 see if we can get this. Now, if you, I can give you all the scriptures, but all of these animals are sacrificed in the Levitical covenant. So they worship the astrology. Yeah, and the god, the, the animals that were symbolized by that astrological sign were the chief gods. If you go in the archaeological in, in Canaan or in Egypt or in Babylon, those gods were their chief gods. And in, in Egypt, in fact, there's this, at the time of Abraham, there's this massive changeover where the temples remained the same, but the God changed. Hmm. Because they, they went from Capricorn or Aries to, to Taurus. Then that happened at the, as you know, that happened at the time of Abraham. At Christ, the thing that happened at the time of Christ was it went from Aries to Pisces. And Christ was born at the dawning of the age of Pisces. Now we are now at the dawning of the age of Aquarius, which in the ancient times, Aquarius didn't mean, 
I mean, it was always water bearer, but the age of Aquarius, according to the ancient wisdom of the rabbis and the Chaldeans, was it was the age of the spirit, when the natural would exist no more. Okay, so he cut these animals in half. What he did, let's read it. He took all these and divided them in the midst and laid one against another, but the birds he divided not. Now the Talmud says he drew a straight, he drew a narrow line across the ground and he put half the animal on each side of that line. And, he put, and then on the one side he put the turtle dove and the other side he put the pigeon. Okay, then what happened? Well, the fowls of the air came down to bug him. And, and, and the Talmud says the fowl of the air, the fowls of the air were the angel or the, the, the it's, it's the, the demon Azazel, which is, is um, anytime you're talking in the scriptures about the unclean birds like the, the, the vultures or the ravens or, and, and the, the unclean birds are those that eat carrion. They eat dead meat. And so, anytime that the uh, the Bible talks about the unclean birds, they're normally it's a it's an allegory for the demons or the spiritual world. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. We're going to talk about this horror of great darkness here for a while. In verse 12 it says, A deep sleep. In the Hebrew it's that's tardima. And it means a lethargy or a trance. The reason this was done, it was to isolate Abram from all other sensory perceptions. Is it the same deep sleep that fell on Adam? Same sleep that fell on Adam. When, when he was to remove entirely the earthly scenes and to bring him into a totally yielded state. And God alone was perceived and heard. And that's what it meant when he was in this horror of great darkness. Let's go to... Uh, no, let's not go there. Let me just talk for a while. Okay, what has happened to Abraham? He's the model of a believer. Abraham has come out of Babylon. Babylon is always symbolic of the horror of Babylon. Religion. All men come out of religion. As we've talked to you before, all men are religious. All men tithe. They always tithe the first 10% to their chief god. All men pray all the time. Your thoughts are your constant prayer. You, you all worship at the altar because wor to worship simply means to give breath to or give importance to. So the whole human race is religious. The whole human race since the day of Abel was the whore of Babylon. Because all it does, it's God, it's chief God, it's self, the isolated self. Okay, he came out of Babylon. Why did he come out of Babylon? Because he was a truth seeker. Just like hopefully every one of you are. And all it meant was is that he, every religion in the world 
every language in the world defines truth by what it isn't. Every language that I'm aware of, except Hebrew. In Hebrew, according to tradition, Abraham defined precisely what the word truth meant. And it was the only thing that he thought giving importance to was of any merit. And that truth was something that didn't change with time, something that was timeless. So as Abraham went through the process, he tested everything against that one thing. Is this, does this change with time? Does this relationship change with time? Does this goal or ambition that I have, does, does knowledge, does, does science, everything, does mathematics? He tested everything against whether it changed, it changed with time, and everything failed the test. And so because in disgust, he left. And for 15 years, he settled in Haran, which is now in Syria. He didn't have any idea what he was doing. And finally said, finally he heard. And then when he heard, it began to cost him something. And finally, it cost him his whole life. It cost him everything that he, it cost him his, everything. And then he said, okay, God, I want a sign. And the sign that God gave him was the same sign that Jesus said would be given. Essentially that you had spent, as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale, so now Abram is going to spend his equivalent of three days in this belly, in this horror of great darkness, when all sensory perception is isolated from him. When you know, and effectively what happens in that, all your ideas and opinions and all your gods and idolatry are destroyed. Okay, now let's talk about your horror of great darkness. And you'll do anything in the world to avoid it. Now, The scriptures say that everything in the universe is an enemy of God. <clears throat> everything. Every alliance, every person, every mind, every relationship, every goal, every ambition is an enemy of God. And all of these things, the world, the world in the first century, it was rel relatively easy to be a believer because it was the choice was black or white they said are you do you believe in God you said yes they said into the lion's pit and so the choice is easy that that that's easy now if you say you believe in God there's no apparent test because you can still go out and do your stuff and do your thing and have your little careers and all your little stuff Except in Russia. In Russia, if you say you're a believer, you can't get a job. And if you can't get a job, guess what happens? They put you in an insane asylum because they, there's a law that says you're a parasite. But my point to you is that the world has not changed. It's gotten more subtle. So now you go through your life, and you, most of you grew up with a label of Christianity or some kind of God stuff. He had no idea what it meant. 
and you were just like every other Gentile. Your life was controlled and fabricated by the compulsions and greed of, of, of normal life. And you de you developed a personality based on on, on either uh, fear of other people's response to you or trying to get other people's approval of you. And it started when you were a little kid. And so this 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 false self that's been fabricated day by day, year by year, throughout your whole life. Is, you, is what you call your identity. And so every once in a while there becomes a hole in that identity. And you get a little nervous. And God says, whoopee. But most of you, when you get a little nervous and you get a little hole in that identity, you say, okay, I'm going to go acquire more stuff. If I acquire more friends or more money or more people around me or more ambition or more something, then I can put a false covering, another covering on this fabricated self. And so all through your life, you've gone one thing after another to patch up this fabricated self. Every time God comes along and he puts a hole in it and you say, oh shit. And then you say, well, I got to get more stuff or I got to get rid of some stuff or I got to do this or I got to change myself. And you've constantly fabricated the false self by this activity. Am I communicating with any of you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> huh? Now the only reason I can say all this is because I I, I, I I see it in me. Now, Is there any part of you that isn't been that has not been fabricated by social compulsions? No. Think about it. Is there anything in you? Is there anything of you that hasn't been fabricated by compulsions? Yeah. What? Yeah, but you're not too sure that exists. I'm not. Well, none of us are. That's what we go through this process. If we were totally sure it existed, we'd be transfigured. The seed. Okay, this, then these compulsions are the molding process of the false self. And the false self always needs ongoing and increasing affirmation. How am I perceived? How am I perceived by the world? Then, then the compulsion reveals itself in the lurking fear of failing. And the steady urge to prevent this by gathering, gathering, gathering. More work, more money, more friends. What are the two, and, and, and these then represent, these are, are revealed in the two main enemies of spiritual life. The two main enemies of spiritual life are anger and greed. Anger is the impulsive, and it's impulsive. It's the impulsive response to the experience of being deprived. The moment you're deprived of something, there's an impulse that happens. If you're deprived of your way, if you're deprived, I mean, it's, it's, it's 
Anger is the immediate response, impulsive response, to the act of being deprived. And when self, when you're, when you're, this fabricated self depends on what others say of you and think of you, then anger is the natural response to the critical world. I'm mad at those people because they cut me off. Well, because you got deprived. God says, praise God. God says, hallelujah. Am I communicating? Do you understand that anger is the natural, impulsive response to being deprived? Is God saying hallelujah because this is your opportunity to depend on him? No. When he then becomes, as it said in the first thing we studied, I am your shield only. I am your buckler only. When your sense of self depends on what you can acquire, and greed, real, greed reveals itself when that desire is frustrated. You understand? Not just acquiring money, but acquiring knowledge. That's why Paul said, whatsoever things are gained to me are lost for Christ. That's why Abraham didn't, Abraham didn't have a Bible. He couldn't talk about Bible stuff. He couldn't, Abraham couldn't be religious. So we got greed and anger. You think you, you do all kinds of stuff to try to keep from revealing it. You, know, you try to be nice. Sort of. You try to be nice. They shall know we are Christians because we're nice. <laughs> right. Okay, so how do we get out of this? How do we get rid of greed and the greed and, and, and the anger? How do we break this cycle? Only one way. It's called the horror of great darkness. What are you smiling at? I'm just waiting. Yeah, I'm waiting. Whenever you grin that Cheshire cat grin, I know something's coming. Well, see, three days is one way to find things. Solitude. You see, a lot of, a lot of you think, okay, I do. I do this all the time. Right? <laughs> You're on the other side of this shit. So no, it's no. easy to laugh. No, no. I think all the time that, no, no. I think, uh, Okay, I need some privacy. So we think privacy, getting away from the stimuli, is going to take care of it. Yeah, kind of did today. Privacy, it's not privacy. The horror of great darkness comes forth only in solitude, not privacy. Privacy is simply a time and a place for ourselves where we are not bothered by other people. We can think our own thoughts and do our own thing, do our own little stuff. But what is solitude? Solitude is where all sensory perception <coughs> is deprived. 
No friends to talk to, no telephone, no meetings, no music, no books, no TV, no drinks, no drugs, no Bible, just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, broken, deprived, a no thing. The horror of great darkness is your perception, your, your reckoning that you are a no thing. A nothing so dreadful you'll do anything to forget your nothingness and believe that you are something. Now your whole life, every one of you, your whole life is one long defense against the reality of your condition. And the restless effort to convince yourself of your own righteousness, your own virtuousness. Having a place to stand, being able to compare. It doesn't matter whether or not you are king or a pauper. All it means is when you come to the perception that your efforts to think that you can change your condition by acquiring more will only end in vanity. I remember one time realizing that everything that I thought was going to get me there, everything was bullshit. It really bullshit. And it was great despair. Just before I became a believer in 1972, um, I had reached that point where everything my my interest was politics. Well, my, really, it was power. But everything that I thought that would give me identity. I saw that it was fruitless. And I told you before, I got to know some of the most powerful men in the world. And they were just idiots. And they didn't know any more than anybody did. You know, there, there used to be this lurking belief that um, if, they got, if they were in power, then they must have some secret. Or I used to think that if I had a lot of money, then, you know, then I would be in control. But the whole thing had to do with control. 
Now, I think every one of you can relate to it because control is the common denominator. Not, and, and, and control is a, is a, is a, is a stair-step thing because you, you know, you, 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 you may be able to control part of yourself and your life and your surroundings, but as time continues, you find that control, first of all, you find it more and more difficult to maintain, but more importantly, you eventually find out that it's an illusion. And so, you, 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 you've been taught from childhood to control your environment. Whether that's, and, and it's all by acquisition, by, ac by acquiring an education, by acquiring friends, by acquiring power, by acquiring money, by acquiring status or a good name or a good reputation or a bad <coughs> reputation. Or, but, but my point is you reach a point. Many times, you've reached, it, you've reached that point a thousand times in your life, but you've always managed to hustle yourself into thinking, well, I'm going to go change myself and get myself back in control. You must perceive that you are not in control. You never have been. And control, even the control that you thought was desirable, was not. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it. Control is this illusion. You know, there's constant, the, the constant thing now is, well, I'm, I'm going to control my diet, or I'm going to control my life, or I'm going to control my surroundings, or I'm going to, well, you know, I, 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 look, Jesus said, grow an inch if you think you're in control. Or, or better yet, you know, you know. Okay, we'll make you in control. Okay, now go eat a piece of bread. Now tell your body which enzyme to release to digest it, which when the the gallbladder should release its stuff so you can digest your food, which part of the osmo of of us of, of the process should should the should the the blood suck the nutrients out of the body. You're not in control. You never have been, but there's been a portion of you that's been given the illusion of control so the test will be complete in God's wisdom. This is, good. is this the process that begins when the, when the infant makes the connection that if it screams, it gets fed, or if it screams, it gets picked up? Right, it's cause and effect. It makes that connection. That's the beginning of it. So is the horror of great darkness somewhat akin to the infant before it makes that connection? when it's hungry or frightened or wrong. Yeah, it could be. But God, th there's an interesting word. When God, when Jesus said, except you become as little children, he used an, a, a word, and it's a Greek word, techna. And in the Greek it means the point in time in your life as a child before self-awareness. Now, at what age does that come? I think it comes at different ages for different people. But in order for you to return to the point without self-awareness, you have to, you, you know, the, the, the Bible uses the word, you must needs pass through the horror of great darkness. Now, whether or not for you it's one concentrated moment or it's a series, it extends over a period of time, but in that horror of great darkness, all of your false identities, all of your false compulsions, 
In other words, you will be in such a place that if God isn't real, you will die. Do you understand? You, 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 where you totally, you, 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 you've, you've seen correctly for the first time in your life that your ideas of control, your ideas of manipulation, your ideas of, 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 of worth, Now, the reason, symbolically, what happened, it says that there was a, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Now, the smoking furnace and the burning lamp, the burning lamp, it's the same thing that happened in Mount Sinai, when there was the lightning and the smoke, and the smoking and I mean, the Taurus, the Talmud says that that smoking furnace and the burning lamp, the smoking furnace was Gehenna, was the was the choice, was was this total nothingness. The lamp, the burning lamp, was the Torah, which was which is Christ. And you see the end result of all of your self-effort, your all of your activities, and it only deserves to be in that smoking furnace. And you're walking, and Abram, I mean, if we apply this analogy, there was a thin line between those two, between the burning lamp on one side and the smoking furnace on the other. But that thin lamp, that thin pathway is the way of Christ. He's not going to teach you the way. He is the way, and he's only manifested in your abandonment of self. And one side of it is Gehenna, and the other is the Torah, or Christ. Now, in, that's why it says, in that solitude, in your condition, in your true recognition of who you are, you must prevail, you must endure in that, not leaning on your own arm of understanding, not going out and getting a hit, not going out and getting drunk. Wait, hold on in that until the, 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 the burning torch, the light is revealed, which is Christ. I, I don't know how to say this anymore, but that's what Abraham saw. This is when Abraham saw the day of Christ and was glad in that horror of great darkness. This is when the gospel was fully preached unto Abraham in the horror of great darkness. It's the only time it could be. Amen. Now, Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 and just look at a couple of things. <clears throat> well, the wisdom of this desert position or this position of solitude is that the con confrontation with our own nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves completely. We present our bodies a living sacrifice without condition thereby Christ is revealed in us, that lamp. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, read it here. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Okay. The terror of God, knowing the terror of God or the Lord, we persuade men. The terror is the opposite side of that line. There's a thin line. 
called the way. And it's terror. The way is terror? No, the what off the way, if you oh. see correctly. And then in Hebrews 10, it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in Psalm 91, it says, we shall, in this position of, of belief, we shall not be afraid of the terror by night. So this is the, don't be surprised if you're tried. Don't be surprised if when you say, God, show me, give me a sign, that the sign he gives you is the horror of great darkness. But all I can promise you is that if you endure in it, not leaning on your own arm of understanding, not using all of your standard little tricks to get out of it, that he will be revealed. And finally, once and for all, you'll believe because it'll be experiential. It's not something that's negotiable. It's not religious. In that state of horror, is that like experiencing despair or anything? I mean, is it going to be like the most down period in your whole life? Oh, yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. But it's when you see yourself correctly. I didn't know it was going to be this hard. What? And I didn't know it was going to be this painful. <laughs> and uh, what, you know, damn, what have I let myself in for? But, and I think, well, I'm going to get the hell out of here. I mean, I'm going to get out of this shit. I mean, it's, but there's no turning back. I can't go back. Now listen to what... I, somehow I'm in the middle. Listen to what Jeremiah said. Oh, Lord, thou hast deceived me. Mm -hmm. I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily, and everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the, Lord, because the word of the Lord was a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. Then I said, aha, I'm not going to talk about him anymore. I'm not going to speak in his name. I'm not going to talk about him anymore. I'm not going to think about him anymore. But his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not prevent it. I think, I think it's important to repeat what you said a few minutes ago, which was, for Abraham, this came in a concentrated period of time. For some people, it comes in moments over yeah, the same years. Yeah, 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 the same thing happens. As, as revelation comes for some instantaneously. Remember we said, the faith of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The faith, the revelation is dependent. The instantaneousness of the revelation is dependent on the depth of the horror of great darkness. I mean, but the, the effect is the same. If revelation is spread over a period of time, this horror of great... He's not going to put anything... That's what he means when he says he's not going to put anything more in you than you can bear. Either revelation. Re either revelation or bad stuff. Um... When we were studying this in the, before on the other group, John Rutledge wrote this piece that talked about this, but it's, uh, he, he, he's a lot kinder than I am. So let me read you what his rendition of this is. What? The hard human heart harbors a deep yearning to give. When the Holy Spirit pierces that stone, the accompanying pain is forgotten as the yearning is released and begins to unfold like a flowering bud. 
captivated with its fragrance, you release your grasp on your own emotions, letting them respond to God's touch without inhibition or without apology. You release the past, the bitterness and festering wounds of past hurts, as well as the hopeless longing to return to better times gone by. And the future with its crush of unseen worries, plans, and ambitions is loosed from your back as well. And last in this disentanglement from time, you give God each moment, each twinkling of an eye, each now. Giving continues and you find yourself releasing to God the very right to yourself or your ego. And the careful measuring of yourself to others or to some standard becomes strange to you. You know you are accepted by God and His Son as you are, and therefore you accept others as they are. You disengage all the social machine that has governed your conduct and interaction with people all your life, and leave behind all other devices that protect you, or distort reality, or cloud who you truly are. In every aspect of thinking, speaking, or acting, you depend on the Father and nothing else, openly. And at last you are drawn to others by this yearning not to gain or to gather, but to give. You find the primeval inducement to gather or survival is replaced by its opposite, self-giving love. And for once, finally, you are a perfect fit. In this fellowship, he is there pouring himself out through you. There is fire, emotion, conflict, death, life, and growth. And all for a purpose you vaguely see but somehow deeply know. But you say you have not yet felt that first sharp entrance of the Spirit's sword. Standing on the edge of this exhilaration, wanting to trust, caught between the unknown and the knowledge that you cannot turn back, you will find him. And he will strike a chord that runs through you and throughout history. It vibrates, but not from the earth or even the cosmos. And through that chord you will find the shaking of everything created, and by it you will be tied to him who is outside of time and space. And at last, your heart's desire will be satisfied. So John says it a whole lot nicer than I do. Doesn't sound horrible. <laughs> sounds like the one song is what it sounds like. Well, the half Torah, or the prophet reading for this, is Isaiah. Well, no, we'll, we'll give you a really good one. Zephaniah. Oh, Zeph, baby. It's just before the New Testament. By the way, Zephaniah, the word means hidden of God or hidden by God. It's like about three bags. Or four bags. Okay, which one? Zeph. Zeph, baby. Zephaniah 3, verse 9 through 19. What? Through 20, I mean. Zephaniah 3, verse 9 through verse 20. Can I read it, Linda? For then will I turn to the people of pure language, that they that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve 
him with one consent from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Ethiopia. <laughs> my, my supplement, my supplement. Suppliants. Suppliants. Even the daughter of my dispersed shall bring my offering. One more and you lose your turn. I'm sorry. I mean, I read I'm real well, you. but I don't ever read out loud. I don't know how. You're doing well. I'm kidding you. <laughs> In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of, of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgment. He hath cast out thine enemy, the king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thy hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the, for the solemn assembly, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at the time I will undo all that afflicted, and I will save her that halted, and gather her that was driven out, and I will give them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that, at that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth. When I turn back when I turn back to captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Also This is like the contrast. That was the good stuff. The contrast, the other reading of the prophets for this section of scripture is Isaiah 1. What? What do you mean, my favorite? It's not my favorite. Uh, this is the uh, way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yuck. <laughs> Isaiah 1. 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Do all of you recognize that the seed of Christ came through Judah? And that Jerusalem, that, the, that, that from the scriptural standpoint, the people say, I mean, the scriptures say, all those that trust in me are as Mount Zion. And it says that the Jerusalem which is above, which is the overriding reality in all of time, it's always here, is the Jerusalem they're talking about. They're talking about seeing, not returning to some place. It's, the Jerusalem is here. And the seed of Judah is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
and those that trust in him are as the Mount Zion. Okay. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken any more? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land strangers devour in it, your presence. Devour it in your presence. And it is desolate, is overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. And except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, or in the, in the Hebrew it says the seed, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been made like unto Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law, our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams, and of the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks, or of lambs, or of he-goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring me no more vain ob oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. New moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, and that's what it means to pray. They didn't pray like this. They prayed with open hands. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Yeah, that's the end of the readings, 1 through 17. Now, now how is that, why is that the reading along the... The promise? The promise and the horror of their garden. Because this is what you see in the heart when you when you individualize it. So the other one is the promise, and this one is the horror of great darkness. One is the burning furnace, and the other is the flaming torch. See, God doesn't God doesn't think that that, that okay you're going to do something and then you think it's bad and He says okay that's a sin. Sin isn't what you do. Sin is what you are. And that's why the cross. That's why you are crucified with Christ. And the only once that penetrates your mind, then the only thing that remains is that pure seed, the seed of Christ within you, and that's revealed in your abandonment. I mean, the story is the same in every verse and every chapter of the Bible. If this is off the wall to say so and go, but Abram. Abram receiving the promise and then going into the horror of great darkness, is there a parallel between that and Christ, Christ's baptism and 
being taken into the wilderness by the Spirit of the Kingdom. Right. That's what, there's a, I have a whole section that I'm here, but we didn't study it because we don't have time. Yeah, it's the same as the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. In a, in, so, in a way, Abram sort of saw all of time. Or, well, he, when he it said he showed him the stars and the Talmud, I mean, Talmud's crazy, but it says he rode on a light beam. Just like the big guy. Just like the big guy. Well, it's interesting that tomorrow in the other group we're going to study this thing about the fact that Abraham received the promise without condition. <coughs> and then the law came later, but the promise was without condition. So what, what's the purpose of the law? And, and how it is that all men want law. All men want to be told what to do. God doesn't want you to be told what to do. Well, in what we study tonight, he was given the promise without any condition, without any you have to do this year, including, I mean, God didn't say any place, Abram, you have to repent. But he went into the horror of great darkness, and by seeing his true condition, the natural response was to repent. So we have a problem with the word. In English, the word repentance comes from penance, which we get penitentiary, and you know. So when you hear repentance, you think, "Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, help. Oh, me. Oh, my. Oh, me." That's not what repentance means at all. Repentance means that you've seen it. Well, God, the Corinthians says that it's the repentance of the world is to the repentance with regret. And so you regret something, you know, I'm sorry I did that. Well, that's not repentance at all. The repentance of God is to see that everything that happened to you was necessary to bring you to this point. If you're, if, if you're, if you're repenting as the church teaches, all you're going to do is dwell in the past and you make the cross of Christ of none effect. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin in the world. It's gone. So there's not anything to repent in that, in that sense. Not, not, no, there's not anything to regret. Yeah. If you regret anything in your life, it just proves you're not a believer. I mean, again, Jesus said the first requirement is to deny yourself. Well, that means, okay, I'm going to stop smoking. No means I'm going to do not. That's not what it means at all. It's the word that means give no thought to yourself. Abandon yourself. If you're giving thought to how bad you, you you were, you know, you can't abandon. That's why these stupid testimonies that are given in Christianity was, praise God, I was a drunk, I was a dope addict, I was a whore, <coughs> but now, praise God, I've been healed. Well, in that whole chapter we read tonight, the only thing that God told Abraham to do was fair enough. Your warfare is accomplished. It's finished. You're free. Just be you. But be you with everything in you.